Welcome to a new space dedicated to biculturalism. A space to gather conversations, resources, and perspectives for everyone who wants to delve into the world of dual identity. I'm Natanya Hoffman, and you're listening to The Extra Half. Hello, everybody, and thanks so much for coming on board and being here with us for our second episode. Last time we were talking to Benjamin Hoffman from Los Angeles, and now we are on the same time zone. And today I'm talking with Pivote Tadese, who is currently living in Zagreb, Croatia. Pivote is a wonderful violist, and we've had really a lot of fun playing together on a couple of occasions, I know I have, um, in Belgium while we were both studying at the Queen Elizabeth Music Chapelle in Waterloo. Before that, she was studying with Michael Kugel, and she studied with him in Belgium and in Holland. And currently she is doing a lot of really interesting chamber music projects as a violist, including with the ensemble Illyrica. And um, she is co-principal violist of the Zagreb Philharmonic. Hello, Hivote. Hi, Natanya. The question that I always like to start with is, when people ask you where you're from, what's the short answer? What's the long answer? And what do you usually end up telling people? Uh, well, the short answer is just that I'm Croatian and that my dad is Ethiopian. But sometimes if I don't feel like it, I'll just say I'm from Zagreb and let people have their questions, which is a bit mean, but it does happen. Then there is uh, the long answer, which would then involve the story of how my parents met, uh, what the political climate was uh, in the 80s and uh, in Croatia, maybe how I feel about it. But usually what I end up telling people is that my dad is Ethiopian and I'm Croatian, born and raised, and my mom uh, as well. Yeah. And actually, what is that story? How did your father come to live in Croatia? Um, well, back in the day, Croatia was a part of a bigger country called Yugoslavia. And the big boss of Yugoslavia, his name was Tito, was good friends with the Ethiopian emperor, uh, Haile Selassie. Actually, when I was in Ethiopia five years ago, I met a journalist who used to work for the emperor and he told me he visited Croatia with the emperor 13 times so they were really good friends yeah uh, and uh, therefore there were many scholarships for Ethiopian students to study in Yugoslavia and my father was one of those students so that's how he got to Croatia and uh, he met my mom at the university and um, yeah, voila, here's me. <laughs> <laughs> and so you were saying that you grew up completely in Croatia. Did you grow up in the capital or did you grow up somewhere else? Yeah, I grew up in the capital of Croatia in Zagreb, uh, which is located somewhere like in the north of Croatia. Croatia has three parts. We really have everything. We have this Medway part in the north, then in the middle between the Mediterranean and the north part where I live in uh, is the mountain part of Croatia, which is beautiful. And then you have this uh, wonderful coast, um, very popular uh, in the tourist seasons um, because of the beauty of its sea and the, like the clarity of the water. And yeah, it's just just wonderful. And um, one more follow up question about Croatia. 
Where is it located? Could you explain that? Well, the easiest way to remember um, where Croatia is, is to just know that we share a border, a sea border with Italy. So we're just on the other side of the Adriatic. And uh, usually uh, Italians are pretty jealous of our coast <laughs> because <laughs> like, yeah, their coast is, um, I don't know how to say it, but they don't have that many islands. And just because of the currents, um, the sea isn't as nice as on our side. Yeah, that's that's true. I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what about Ethiopia? Have you been a couple of times? Have you been at all? Well, I've only been once because it's like a huge uh, procedure to to go there because I still need a visa and you need to get some vaccines and you know the travel and, and stuff costs uh, quite a lot. But uh, four years ago, we went there for my cousin's wedding, so it was a really um, for, let's say a family moment. And it was wonderful for me just to see uh, where my father's from and where this big part of me is from. And also to, to experience an Ethiopian wedding because these things last for, let's say, even 30 days. We were there for 20 days and we like had to leave even though the party wasn't over <laughs> yet. Yeah. <laughs> so that was cool. And they always dress in these beautiful national robes of Ethiopia, like the, the, their dresses and there are many really traditional parts um, of the wedding. And yeah, about the country, I'm still, a let's say, an European. So the poverty is striking. And I do think you never actually get used to it. But also, on the other hand, uh, Ethiopia has the fastest growing economy in Africa. So there is hope for the people. And also, it's just so ridiculously beautiful. Um, I had the privilege to see my father's village, which is located on seven volcanic lakes. So it's like the most beautiful place ever. Yeah. And I, yeah, I got to see his house where he grew up with his uh, large family. And uh, he only had like one light bulb or something like that in the whole house. And, you know, he had to study and stuff like that really made me appreciate um, all the effort he's been through. Wow. Yeah. I was wondering, while you were there, were you perceived very much as a European or were you perceived more as like a cousin who grew up in a different place? I mean, what was the perception there when you were in Ethiopia? Well, in Ethiopia, family is really what matters. So in the um, in the family circle, let's say you're always just like an equal member of the family and nobody really cares like where you grew up or anything. They're just like, they're very... Um, they're just very fond of you, like no matter what. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, like walking on the street, especially with my mom, because she's, uh, you know, she's, I don't know how to say, but she's much lighter than me and has blonde hair. And it's like, she it's, she's very easy to spot. So yeah, on the street, um, obviously people would see that we are not uh, from Ethiopia. So then you would have like more people asking you for money or or things like this, or just like uh, staring at you, or but nothing like nothing uh, racist or anything, just like out of curiosity, I would say. So, 
in terms of your name, I think you once told me a little bit about the story. Where does it come from and how did your parents choose the name Kivote? So actually, my parents wanted to call me Vivian. And then my mom went for her final checkup and her regular doctor wasn't there. And the uh, replacement doctor, uh, her name was Vivian, right? And she opens the door and she sees this like huge unfriendly uh, doctor <laughs> called Vivian. And she was like, not my daughter. Okay, so <laughs> she comes back home. <laughs> and obviously my dad already has uh, something, you know, up his sleeve. And that was my name, which um, means my life. So not that far from the from the actual meaning of Vivian. So Hiwata means my life and Tadessa means reborn, renewed. So basically it's a whole sentence in Amharic. My life is renewed or my life is reborn. And which language or languages did you grow up speaking at home? Well, unfortunately, um, I've only been speaking Croatian in my home because my dad ever never taught me Amharic, unfortunately. I'm really sad about that because I think it would be wonderful to be able to speak this language. It's one of the four uh, main languages in, in Ethiopia and also officially used. So there are like millions of people I could talk to if I, if I knew it. But yeah, I'm, I started to study it a bit now by myself and with some help of my father but it's uh it's a pretty complicated language hard to pronounce and also they have their own alphabet which makes it a bit more <laughs> difficult <laughs> yeah yeah so some how are some of the ways you've been learning amharic so i've been using this shadowing technique which basically means that uh, whenever my dad talks on the phone with my cousins from ethiopia i would just repeat silently after him <laughs> which is a bit scary if you don't know what I'm doing but uh, yeah it really does help that's actually how my dad studied creation he speaks perfectly but he always had his radio on even he even has it on today but like he would always just repeat the words he hears and at home would you consider your bicultural identity something that was specifically celebrated or a specific point of pride or more not a big deal? And it was just one of the many things that happened within a five person family. Yeah, I think my parents were always really good at somehow combining the both traditions. So the biggest difference, I would say, was the food, because um, we are all so crazy about the Ethiopian food called injera. Um, do you know what it is, Natanya? Yeah, I do. It's so good. Yeah. So it's like for for those of you who do not know, it's just like huge uh, soury pancake, which is made from flour um, that only from this plant that only grows in Ethiopia. It's called tuff and it's gluten free. It's like absolutely stunning. And you eat it with your hands and with some usually very spicy sauces. Um, so that's what we do, actually. Um, that is very different from any Croatian family. And also, like on some Ethiopian holidays, we would light a candle or um, or things like this. Yeah. Or also in musical sense, like my, my dad would often play the national music of Ethiopia, which is very different. It's like not what what you would imagine for 
you know, this typical African music to be, because it's it's like a mixture between the West African and uh, and the Arabic music. Yeah, it's something really interesting, and also the way they dance. I would definitely recommend you just like once in your lifetime, if you have the chance, uh, to go to this uh, club. Um, if you're ever in Addis, let's say, like go to this club called Abyssinia, and because they they have like the best dancers in Ethiopia uh, who dance to all of the seven um, most famous tribal dances, and it's like it's wonderful. Yeah, their speed, their moves. Yeah, I've never seen something like that. And thinking about your parents, though, actually, I mean, now you've talked specifically a lot about um, your father's culture, but do you see your parents when you're at home? Because your parents are are married, so so mm-hmm. you see them together often, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but um, do you see them as similar people? And do you see their worldviews, um, regardless of, let's say, their childhoods and their upbringings, but do you see their worldviews now as adults to be similar or, or quite different? Yeah, I would say they're very, very similar. And actually, everything they do, they do together. And um, they're both characterized by being very hardworking, like honest and um, education appreciative people. And I think that's what actually brought them together and what keeps them together, right? So, yeah, I would say they're they're pretty much um, of the same character, both of them, even though like grow up, they grew up in completely different countries and continents apart. <laughs> yeah. And what about the role of faith? Does faith play a strong role in your family and does it play a unifying role, perhaps? I would say um, it does play a unifying role because um, my, from my mom's side uh, most of my ancestors were Roman Catholic but they're also we also have a Jewish part of the family and um, from my dad's side they're they're mostly Coptic but like one of the grandparents was Muslim and things like this so now we're mostly Catholic and Coptic but this is kind of the same I would say because the Copts, they are the oldest Christians you could find. They only still um, exist in Egypt and in Ethiopia. They basically kept the same right, like from the first century on, right? So they didn't change anything. Um, but they're really like recognized by the Catholic Church as a, uh, let's say, something like the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. That's the relationship between the Coptic and the Catholic Church. But, you know, the holidays are the same, right? And uh, my dad would always uh, actually go to church with us and, like, celebrate um, the Catholic holidays. It's just somehow that, I don't know. I mean, if I was in Ethiopia, I would probably celebrate the the Coptic holidays. Um, And, uh, yeah, the thing is that they have a different calendar, (laughs) which, like, makes it it great when you're a kid. Because like you have two two Easter's <laughs> always, and um, actually that story is pretty interesting uh, for those of you who do not know. But Ethiopia is like seven years behind uh, the rest of the world. They they're now in 2013 because their year still has uh, 11 no th- 13 months. So they every year they have this like 13th month that lasts for like five or six days. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, because apparently it was all it's all due to the calculation of uh, of the time when Jesus was born and Ethiopians think it's seven years uh, before we do. So like I'm not sure who is right. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. Mm. So in terms of navigating two cultures, what were some moments that you clearly perceived as advantages? I, I mean, you just talked about getting two Easter's um, and I'm sure that having double holidays and double traditions is really great. But was there anything else there specifically in terms of the person that those two cultures shaped you to be? And what about some disadvantages where you felt like um, you were maybe a little bit singled out? Well, the advantage is definitely that I feel, um, in comparison with my Croatian friends, right, um, I feel a bit more open to all other foreigners and I'm not uh, shy to talk to them in English or in Flemish, uh, even though it's not perfect, or, you know, just like approaching uh, foreigners and sometimes even serving as a mediator to my friends uh, who don't like feel they speak English good enough to be able to talk to foreigners and then like that that creates a wall which just like shouldn't be there because yeah they their English is great but yeah so that would be one of the advantages then another advantage would be like getting constant compliments <laughs> yeah that sounds really narcissistic but I think I don't know maybe just it's probably just because I look a bit different and then people want to like show me how they I don't know appreciate or something so yeah I would often get the comments while wow, your hair is so beautiful or like I wish I had your uh, your skin tone you know because all of the creations like their dream is to after the summer to have this beautiful bronze skin right <laughs> so uh, so you would get all these constant compliments um feels good but yeah maybe on the negative side that's that's just it you always feel a bit and look a bit different than everybody else and um, yeah as a kid I always found it a bit uh, sad like every time I, I went into a tram people would like look at me and stuff like this but it happens less and less so there is not um, yeah there is this kind of curiosity doesn't exist anymore because people are very now they're just very used to you know having a having black people around or at least they've seen them on television or at least once in real life so it doesn't really um you know does it doesn't really shock them anymore <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're a violist and i thought it would be really nice for us to listen to a little bit of your playing can you tell us a little bit about what we're about to listen to yeah, uh, you're going to hear a piece by um, the Argentinian composer Astor Piazzolla. And this was recorded live last summer in Split, which is a city in Croatia on the coast, uh, where the emperor Diocletian had his palace. And we were playing in his cellars, so they're in antique Roman cellars. And I'm playing with my ensemble uh, called Ensemble Lyrica. Uh, and the members are uh, Marco Ferlan, who you're going to be hearing uh, on the guitar, uh, Nika Bauman on the flute, and Iva Kasian Lakos uh, on the cello. Yeah, hope you enjoy it. Mm -hmm.
So we've been listening to Astor Piazzolla's Fuga e Misterio, performed by you, Hivote, and the ensemble Illyrica. And I thought that it would be a nice bridge into talking about your identity and your profession, actually. Um, do you think that your identity has in any way influenced your career path? Or how did you become the violist that you are today? How did that start? So on my dad's side, um, my grandma was a very good singer, they say. And she was even invited to join the National Choir of Ethiopia. But my grand-grandmother wouldn't have it. Like, she didn't allow her. And then um, on my mom's side, my grandpa and everybody from that side of the family played, played an instrument and sang and everything. So uh, my grandpa had this theory that his kids had to go to music school, like and the same way you would go to a regular school. You just had to have, uh, have another piece of, of information about music, right? So he would um, inscribe them into the music school. And that's what my mom did with me. Um, she took me to a concert when I was like seven. And it was this typical children's concert, you know, where you, you get to hear uh, every instrument. And I just picked the violin. I thought it was the most pretty sound I've ever heard. And that's how I started playing. So it was just part of my education. And then during the years, it just grew more and more into loving this or just like doing this uh, because of the uh, pure pleasure of it and the friends and the wonderful crew we we have here in the music school of Zagreb right but um, yeah I don't know I always had the feeling that I should do something uh, with my life to help other people so that I was not like born in Croatia with all these possibilities just like to to create a life that would just satisfy my own needs right I always wanted to give something back to the to the community and as I was thinking about what to study I had this huge doubt whether I should study medicine and then just like be very efficient in the society and really help other people or should I pursue this talent that I have that not that many people have, which is viola playing, and uh, maybe use this to like help the world, let's say. Yeah, I had, I had pretty big, big plans, right, <laughs> as a teenager. So yeah, in the end, I met uh, Michal Kugel, um, professor of mine, with, who he is just like my, like my other grandpa, basically, who always like told me that... Um, this heritage that I have is very unique and that I can, that I can really, uh, really help also the, the Ethiopians by doing what I do. And yeah, actually one of the dreams I have is to, um, to have a master class in Ethiopia to start, a, to start a music school there or at least work with the people who study there at the conservatory. And I actually went and visited uh, the school when I was there in Addis uh, four years ago. And the conservatory's dean is a viola player. <laughs> Who would say, right? Mm -hmm. We are everywhere. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and she um, she was really up for the idea. So I'm currently working on it. And another person who really inspired me 
uh, just like to see this cultural thing as a as a huge benefit was uh was a lady i met in chile and uh, she kind of told me when i when we talked about it she's a huge humanitarian and uh and i was really like amazed by her um because she's from this uh royal family of of habsburgs but she just dedicated her whole life to uh to helping others and she told me like yeah you can really do great things with your uh with your music for the people of uh, of ethiopia and um I do have a question for you, and I'm not sure like what your thoughts are on this. Sometimes I have kind of a struggle when I think about um, within the world of classical music. And I guess it's kind of a hot topic now. But if you really stop to think about it, I mean, the fact that there are so few female composers and that there's so many composers who had very, very intolerant views. I mean, anti-Semitic, um, racist, and, and kind of reconciling the beauty that classical music is, and I'm completely convinced by that. There's no doubt about it. But how to, kind of reconciling it um, with this Western music as being part of the global package of things that were being exported during colonialism and things. Sometimes, I mean, I, I feel like classical music has been used as kind of um, a way of separating people who have culture from people who don't. So I wonder what your thoughts are about a what makes this thing be so important that we should be holding on to it and supporting it, even when the Western culture is kind of letting it fade out? And B, in what ways actually classical music can help support communities who haven't had access to it? Yeah, well, that was also my concern because obviously I think that Ethiopians have a wonderful musical culture, even without the Western uh, classical music right so I also felt a bit like why would you you know want the kids there to play Mozart if they have like their amazing uh, national music but the thing is like like in every mastery I think just that in the western culture uh, we've kind of just found the techniques that just make uh, things work like you would do in any other science like you would if you have something like if you developed a great uh, software, you wouldn't just like, you know, go to to a country that doesn't have it and then say like, oh, but um, I see that you're on the on the good way. You just like I would say you would just give them the tools um, so that they can do the things they do, like if they're creating their own software uh, easier. Right. So I think that's that would be my task in Ethiopia. I think you could I think it would be easier for them to uh, learn how to play Mozart than it would be for us, like, to learn how to play the, any of the Ethiopian songs. Yeah, uh, that's just my opinion, but I've tried and it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, so, like, that's true. I don't want to be, like, the missionary who comes and saves the um, the Ethiopian music from uh, playing Ethiopian music, but, like, you know, just, like... Uh, yeah, just giving them the tools to do it uh, easier. And then for the community part of the question, it would more mostly be for the social part of it, right? And for the kids to to have some some extra thing to do like in their day and to develop those skills that are so necessary when you play an instrument. 
like the the little movements that that you need the concentration the balance between uh what you think you should do and what other people tell you you should do and um yeah just like mm, when i was in ghent uh there was a guy writing his phd uh on the topic of whether music can really uh solve conflicts and um he did his study in kinshasa in congo with the musicians there and i've never got to read the the full paper but i think his results were that yes that it's really uh that it really can help solve conflicts right because you build the um the strength of the eternal community right so you you give them something to to do together and not to like just be on the streets and like hang out and just as if it would happen in uh in any other country right music really has this power to unite yeah absolutely at least uh, for me it's easy to forget what the real world applications of of a childhood spent learning a classical in- instrument are i mean there's just so much that you learn in terms of focus it's it's actually amazing yeah and i just don't think about it because i didn't know it any other way but yeah and do you feel like in life you often find yourself in life and in your profession as a mediator or an ambassador or kind of a bridge between two points of view or two cultures i would say yes um as i mentioned earlier that's just um also the part of being uh free to speak a language even though you're sure that it's not as perfect as it can be um which many people really have an issue with like i had some french friends who didn't want to speak dutch even though they were really good but just like had this wall and yeah i don't know but i i think it's also something due to my character most of my friends tell me that i'm a good listener so and also like yeah you cannot say this on this interview but i'm usually the person who who stays silent and like doesn't say much so which allows me to <laughs> to listen a lot and what about um politics and current events are there certain political viewpoints that you feel like perhaps people around you might be tempted by or identify with but that just don't work for you quite simply because of who you are and some very very basic thinking around that yeah well i would say it's all the extremes right it would be also the far left as the far right yeah nothing that separates the the human the humanity from from the person just like because of the color of their skin or um because of where they're from or yeah so i never even thought about those options as um, as a thing but yeah i do think that it's very important still to just talk to those people and what i've started doing is um just trying to find out why they are the way they are and why the the radicalists on both sides think what they think and feel what they do so yeah one of the ways just doing it is i don't know i started following you know on facebook like all of the different political options that you can imagine 
because I don't I don't want to have a wall that is just like uh, central or left or right. I want to know like what everybody is uh, writing so that I can understand my fellow citizens uh, better. But do any of those things, I mean, for me, because actually I, I try to do that also, um, especially certain news organizations, and I always kind of wonder where to draw that fine line between just completely discrediting things in my mind, but then at the same time also trying to understand them. I mean, how, how do you deal with that? Are, do you sometimes see things that you just feel like you can completely see through? Um, or do you try to really just follow them out to the end? Uh, well, it really depends, like on w- what the topic is, right? And uh, but I don't know. It just I just want to know what they what uh, what they get in their newsfeed, right? Because that that's what also shapes their minds somehow. Uh, and me, like watching back with a distance, it kind of helps me understand where where they come from, you know. And also, I would add, like after listening uh, to a podcast by this uh, wonderful jazz pianist who managed to, through just through conversation, convert more than 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan and the Nazis. And uh, he's black, right? Um, and uh, just like through conversation, you know, he just listened to them and slowly, it sometimes even took him seven years, but uh, he would like, you know, he would really try to understand where they're coming from. Just like he wouldn't just see their actions and then like accuse them, but he would just uh, try to see what made them think that way. And I now I re- like after hearing him talk, I really think that's the only way you can actually change people or make them make them see the other <laughs> the other side, right? And earlier in this conversation, you mentioned. Um, that you identify as black or you were talking about yourself as a black person. Is that something that you've always felt or is that a process that evolved over time? Yeah, honestly, I think as a kid, everybody thinks they're just like whatever color, like you don't even care. It could be green, whatever, right? Yeah, for me, I started noticing it when I was a child. I, I, I can't remember the the exact age, but like yeah, I just realized one day, like, my, my parents are not the same color. Like, obviously, you see it, right? But you don't think it's that big of a deal or, like, that it's a deal at all, right? <laughs> but somehow, like, you see, okay, so that's not really what everybody's parents are, are like. And then this is something that society sees different. And just, like, this idea that this idea sticks with you but it's not something I had as as a child like I remember and also like even this realization that my dad had to study creation that it's not his mother tongue was like came pretty late I think I was like 10 or something that I realized okay this is not my dad's mother tongue but because he speaks it so well that like I forgot he had to learn it (laughs) and things like this yeah so I guess it did come over time yeah and was that ever a conversation that happened within the family or was it more actually you just uh, gathering your, your your evidence as a little young <laughs> detective? <laughs> uh, no, I would say actually we never spoke about it in that way. I just uh, I just realized it. Yeah. But I also think it's because we live in Croatia and it's not really an issue in the sense that that we have some racial things that like that my parents would have to, you know, sit me down and tell me uh 
um, you know, you have to be careful, you know, in this and this and this. We had conversations like this, but never, <laughs> never based on, on my race, no. And did you ever experience racism in Croatia? And what is the history behind that also as well? The thing with Croatia is that uh, we're a country that never had any colonies, right? Or we didn't have slavery in this traditional sense that people think of, like like in America. Uh, then also we had this law in the beginning of the 15th century from the Dubrovnik Republic that abolished slavery. So this was like 600 years ago. There was a law that just abolished slavery there. There's no slaves allowed, right? So uh, the slavery idea is somewhere so far back in the minds of Croatia that Croatians that nobody even thinks about it that way. And everybody kind of thinks it's just something that was in the past and it was terrible and like, let's never do it again. Something like the plague, like never, let's never have it again. Yeah, and... um so it's not really something you would uh, see in Croatia. In Croatia, we have our own problems, like let's say the relationship with the Serbians after the war isn't that perfect yet, but it's getting better. Um, and let's say the only racial incidents I had were twice in my life. And both of the times, even though it, didn't feel nice, you know, to be called the N-word or something like that. I've always been, like, very um, happy to have this bunch of friends around me who immediately showed the, the person being racist that this is, like, just crazy and not allowed in a civilized society. So just, like, okay, it was it was nasty and not nice, but at the same time, it just made me appreciate uh, my friends so much and everybody around me as well. Yeah. And do you ever feel like you are put in a situation in which people doubt your Croatianness and that you have to show them in some way? And how does that feel? <laughs> oh, this happens. I think this happens every day. Uh, so like, uh, yeah, usually um, you start a conversation with somebody and then there are questions like where you're from. Okay, the first thing. And then if you say Zagreb, then you just annoy them. And then you're like, and then they're like, <laughs> but where are you really from? Okay, then I say Ethiopia. Wow, but your creation is so good. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I went to school here. I read all the books. Like I was born <laughs> in Zagreb. But I can like I can understand the curiosity. I guess like if I if I saw another black person in the city I would also ask myself like where they're from right so I, I don't want to be <laughs> mean or anything but it does happen to me a lot yeah that people say like that my creation is wonderful or, and things like this <laughs> well it's so interesting I mean it, it kind of talking to and, and, and hearing the the place where you're you're coming from <laughs> not literally but but psychologically it just makes me kind of realize that you know, things could have gone differently in so many ways and so many places. And, and of course, as an American, I, I have the feeling that I think a lot of um, European descendants have, which is kind of this, this dread and this feeling of guilt that's just kind of sitting there. Um, but, you know, I think we need to be those people like um, 
like in Croatia 600 years ago and we need to find ways to move away from guilt and move away from dread and move into action. So um, I'm sorry that I was born into a legacy that was much less civilized, um, but I, I hope that, yeah, I, I really appreciate what you said about conversation and, and I really hope that we can work through conversation and work through concrete action to just move forward with the rest of the world. Um, yeah, I think that's why this podcast is so great. Like the the whole team and the and the way you're doing it, I think it will also be a part of the change um, for the United States and and the rest of the world, of course. Yeah. Well, I had no idea when when I first started um, talking to you about this that your your story is actually so um, moving and full of hope and and uplifting. So, you know, just keep doing what you're doing and I hope we can talk again in a couple of years and in different tones and with some updates on what's going on but just ending up because I think it's important to think about the fact that boundaries have always been fluid and humans have always been nomadic and cultures and languages have always been evolving but in this pocket of history in which we find ourselves right now we are both anomalies because we come from two cultures that are pretty rigidly um, divided from one another, if you will, just in terms of language and traditions. So for people who are in that kind of relationship, what would be some advice that you might have for how to raise their children and perhaps how to overcome some of the pitfalls that, that might have accidentally happened in your own family? Well, my biggest uh, recommendation would be, like, please teach them your language. Because <laughs> it's so much easier when you're a kid. Um, and it just, like, gives the kids a huge possibility. Even if you think, like, oh, this language is only spoken by a few million people. It doesn't really, like, it doesn't really matter. Like, just do it. Please do it. Because, like, yeah... I that's one of my biggest uh, regrets that I don't yet speak Amharic but yeah as I said I'm working on it <laughs> yeah so I would and also like I would advise you to maybe talk to your kid more if you see that um the kid is struggling or just that you know it might be asking itself like where 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 he or she is from and uh why she looks the way she does and is this gonna affect you know the you know hanging out with friends and her life in general um just like maybe sit, sit her down and tell her um or him you know what what's happening what's really happening yeah um yeah so again conversation <laughs> And if there's some great food from your country, <laughs> feed them this food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Hivata. It was really great talking to you. You too, Natanya. Hope to see you soon. The Extra Half is created and produced by a small but dedicated team. Thanks to Zilvanas Brazauskas, who's doing the editing and who created, performed, and recorded the original music you're hearing right now. Thanks to Jasmine Jones, the graphic designer behind our logo and all the graphics associated with this podcast. If 
If you'd like to get involved, you can log on to anchor.fm slash the extra half and feel free to send us a voice message with questions, comments, or suggestions on what we can do in the future. If you know someone who you think would be a good fit for the podcast, just let us know. Also, please rate and review this podcast on whichever platform you're using. And you can find us on Facebook or Instagram with our very new accounts. The podcast Hivote was speaking about is Changing Minds with Daryl Davis, which is definitely something powerful that we'd really recommend listening to. Next time, we'll be speaking with David and Ellen Mamadov, whose parents are from Azerbaijan and Armenia. Ellen was born in Baku, and David was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, after his family had moved to the U.S. I'm Natanya Hoffman. You've been listening to The Extra Half. Take care until next time. <laughs>